Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 25. Today we will be reading Book 7, Chapters 8 through 12 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. All right, well, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. St. Augustine begins to consider a few central Christian Catholic realities here in these chapters. So he begins to consider and talk about the logos or the word, um, which is both a Neoplatonic idea and a Christian reality. So he's going to talk about those in comparison. He's also going to talk about the immutability of God or the unchanging nature of who God is, and then the goodness of creation, uh, the goodness that comes from God who is goodness himself. All of these things are at odds with what St. Augustine believed before uh, becoming a catechumen, before arriving at this point in his life as a manichae. So he's exploring these sort of basic tenets of Christian life and Christian truth and of God um, on which all the rest is built. So we're going to begin there with him, or at least go there with him to check it out. So let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 8 Yet you, O Lord, abide forever, but you are not angry with us forever. For you take pity upon the dust and ashes from which we are made, and it was pleasing in your sight to reform my deformities. Inwardly prodding me, you roused me, so that I should be ill at ease until you at last would be manifested to my inward sight. Thus by your secret medicine my swelling abated, and the troubled and dimmed eyesight of my mind was healed day by day by the bitter solve of healing sorrows. Chapter 9. Wishing first to show me how you resist the proud but give grace to the humble, and how great was your mercy in tracing out for men the way of humility in the incarnation of your word, who dwelt among men, you obtained for me, by means of someone puffed up with most unnatural pride, certain books by Platonist philosophers translated from Greek into Latin. In them I read, not in the very words, but to the very same end, supported by many and various reasons, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that the soul of man, though it bears witness to the light, nonetheless is not that light. But the word of God himself being God was the true light that enlightens every man and was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. 
However, I did not read there that he came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. And again there I read that God the Word was born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, I did not read there either, for I traced out in those books that it was variously said that the Son was in the form of the Father, and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, for he was of the same substance as the Father. But those books did not tell me that he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." In them I saw that before and above all time your only begotten Son abides unchanging, co-eternal with you, and that from his fullness all souls have received, so that they might thereby be blessed, being renewed by the participation of wisdom that abides in them. But I did not there read, at the appointed time he died for the ungodly, nor that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. For you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to babes, so that they who labor and are heavy laden might come to him and receive rest, for he is meek and lowly in heart. Nor he leads the humble in what is right, and teaches the humble his ways. Beholding our lowliness and trouble, he forgives all our sins. But those who sit in the elevated heights of a supposedly lofty teaching do not hear the voice of him who says, Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, I also read there that they had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles, namely for that Egyptian food by which Esau lost his birthright. And likewise, your firstborn people worship the head of a four-footed beast instead of you, turning their hearts back toward Egypt, bowing your image, that is, their souls, before the image of a calf that eats hay. I found all these things there, yet did not feed upon them. For it pleased you, O Lord, to take away from Jacob the reproach of being born later, so that the elder should serve the younger, and you called the Gentiles into your inheritance. Indeed, I came to you from among the Gentiles, and set my mind on the gold that you wish for your people to take from Egypt, for wherever it was found, it was yours." And to the Athenians you said through your apostle that in you we live and move and have our being, as one of their own poets had said. And indeed, these books were from among the Gentiles, but I set not my mind on the idols of Egypt, whom they served with your gold, men who exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Chapter 10 and thus being admonished by them to return to myself, I entered even into my inward self with you as my guide, and I was able to do so for you had become my helper. 
And I entered, and with the eye of my soul, such as it was, I beheld the unchanging light above the very eye of my soul, above my mind. It was not that ordinary light that all flesh might see, nor a kind of brighter physical light, even if this should be brighter by many magnitudes, and take up all of space with its luminosity. No, that is not what this light was like. It was different, far different from all these. Nor was it above my soul, as oil floats upon water, nor even as heaven is above earth. Rather, it was above my soul because it made me, and I was below it because I was made by it. He that knows the truth knows what the light is, and he that knows it knows eternity. Love knows it, O truth who are eternity, and love who are truth, and eternity who are love. You are my God. To you do I sigh night and day. When I first knew you, you lifted me up so that I might there see what I could see, but also might see that I was not yet able to see. You beat back the frailty of my sight, bathing me in the radiance of the beams of your light, and I trembled with love and awe, and I perceived how far I was from you, in the region of dissimilitude, as though I heard your voice from on high. I am the food of grown men. Grow, and you shall feed upon me. But you will not change me like bodily food into you, but rather you shall be converted into me. And I learned that you chastened man for his iniquity, and made my soul to waste away like a spider." And I said, Is truth therefore nothing, because it is not spread out through space, whether it be finite or infinite? And you cried to me from afar, Yes, indeed, I am who I am. This I heard with the ear of my heart, and I have no room to doubt, for I would sooner be able to doubt than I live, than to think that I must deny the existence of that truth, clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Chapter 11 and I beheld the other things below you, and perceived that they neither altogether have being, nor altogether lack it. For they have being because they are from you, but they lack being because they are not what you are. Therefore it is good for me to hold fast to God, for if I do not stand fast in him, I cannot do so in myself. However, he remaining in himself renews all things, and you are the Lord my God, since you do not stand in need of my goodness. Chapter 12 and it was then clear to me that even those things that are subject to change and corruption are good, even though they are not the sovereign good. And indeed, if they were not good, they could not undergo corruption. If they were sovereignly good, they would be incorruptible. But if they were not at all good, there would be nothing in them that would be corrupted. For corruption injures, and for this to take place, there must be some good to be diminished. Therefore, either corruption does not injure something which cannot be the case, or everything that is corrupted is deprived of goodness, which is most certain. However, if they were deprived of all good, they would cease to be. But if they were to exist, only no longer subject to corruption, they would be better than before, for they would abide incorruptibly. And what more monstrous thing could there be than to affirm that things become better by losing all their good? Therefore, if they were deprived of all good, they should no longer be. Thus, for as long as they exist, they are good, and therefore whatsoever is, is good. Therefore, the evil that I was seeking to explain was not any kind of substance, for if it were, it would be good. For it would either be an incorruptible substance, and thus a good of the first rank, or it would be a corruptible substance, which could not suffer corruption if it were not itself good. Therefore, I perceived, and it was manifested to me, that you made all things good, and that there was no substance that you had not made. And likewise, I saw that you did not make all things equal, but they all have being, for each of them is good, and all of them taken together are very good, for our God made all things very good. Okay, 
Chapter 8 here, our first chapter for today, begins with a brief reflection on, on God's providential hand in St. Augustine's life of leading, leading him and leading us, those of us who are traveling along the way, to truth, um, to the truth. And it kind of, we begin with, in sort of the same way that the confessions began um, and have continued throughout this sort of praise of God for his goodness to Augustine, which is, yeah, just throughout the confession. So they're beautiful little moments and insights into Augustine's gratitude and thankfulness and, and praise and adoration of God. It's quick, but it's good. It's beautiful. But perhaps more, um, I don't know, substantially here, we begin to have a conversation about the logos or the word. Augustine sets up or discusses what the sort of Neoplatonic versus the Christian notion or understanding of the logos is. Father Gregory, do you want to do you want to lay that out for us a little bit? Yeah, sure. I think here you have a great indication, both by comparison and by contrast, of the novelty of the Christian claim. What do I mean by that? I'm not even sure myself. Uh, so in describing the Platonic and the Neoplatonic tradition about the Logos, certainly there's this desire to kind of access the intelligibility at the heart of all reality. And by that, I mean simply like there is a pattern on which all things are conceived. So in the Neoplatonic understanding, you know, you have the one and by a kind of exchange, as it were, with this subordinated principle, then you have the creation of all things, uh, which issue from the one. And all those things, they have kind of bound up in them or they have impressed upon them their their pattern as as given by the one. So I mean it's somewhat complicated and I don't understand it entirely too well and as a result of which I'm not communicating with the best facility. But the basic idea is that there is a sense at the heart of reality and that by pursuing this way of philosophy you can access it. And St. Augustine builds a bridge here to the beginning of the Gospel of John. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, in the beginning all things came to be through Him, uh, and without Him nothing came to be. So we're talking here about the Word, and we as Christians go on to say the Word incarnate, you know, because we think about it in those terms, because we think about our, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is uh, the second of the most blessed Trinity, who took human flesh and time and space to save us from our sins. Uh, but he here, he you know, he sympathizes with this notion of the Word, but he stumbles with the Word incarnate, and that's where you know it's that's why I said comparison and contrast with because it's it's like to the Neoplatonists, but it's different from the Neoplatonists, and the fact that he's not able to bridge that difference at least at this time, it it reveals to us the novelty of the Christian claim. Namely, that God, Most High, the pattern of all creation, who transcends all creation, would throw in his lot with creation so as to save creation, which is astounding. And so for him, it's, it's going to be a real stumbling block trying to capture this sense of condescension at the heart of the gospel, that God comes from his great height and then takes up our condition. So though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but emptied himself, something that we repeat often in our Christian liturgies. So I think that here you have St. Augustine kind of struggling with these with these different features of the Neoplatonic tradition and the Christian tradition and trying to make sense of, of both. Yeah, there's, it's the sort of, when we think of the word too in Christ, the incarnate word, the sort of another image to think of here is, and which is 
you know, appropriate and apropos of our conversation with Augustine is, is Christ who is also sort of incarnate wisdom. You know, he's the personification of wisdom or wisdom incarnate, really not personification, but he is sort of the intelligibility of creation. He is that which creation is after. And the Neoplatonists have this idea too, as Father Gregory was explaining, but obviously when, when we're talking about the second person of the Trinity becoming man, it it's, there's some differences as Father Gregory explained. So that, that kind of sets that for us. Augustine, he moves and he speaks about prayer and his own sort of step into prayer and contemplation. He says that, and being thence warned to return to myself, I entered into my inward self, thou leading me on, or you leading me on. Yeah, in reading that, it was interesting to see St. Augustine wrestling with these ideas of the logos. He's still talking about evil and, and God who is unchangeable and the goodness of creation, those things come, but also you know, it's a reminder that St. Augustine isn't just doing an intellectual exercise, but he, that he's praying. You know, this is a prayer to come to know. His work is one of coming to know God, um, of coming to know who God is and, and what God is working in his life. So I don't know. Did that strike you at all, Father Gregory, of like returning to his inward self and that sort of bit? Yeah. It's, it's funny, like in reading that passage, I think like, where have we been previously? You know, he's describing how he loses himself in his environment or he loses himself in the object of his passions, but he's always returning to his inward self. But I think sometimes that can convey a false sense of the actual events themselves. Like we forget sometimes, again, we've repeated it, so maybe you're more conscious of it, that he's writing this sometime between 397 and 400, and he's looking back at his life from 354 up through like 386 roughly. And so he himself is far more recollected at this later stage in his life while revisiting an earlier stage in his life. And as a result of which we're reading everything through a kind of introspection or a kind of uh, contemplative disposition, which has come to characterize his later years. And so when he says this, it kind of brings before my eyes the fact that, oh yeah, like we grow in our capacity to be reflexive as it were, or to be recollected. And here we're getting an indication of maybe a step in that journey or a step in that process for St. Augustine, that it's really in his engagement with philosophy and with theology, his engagement with the deep questioning provoked by the Christian witnesses in his life, that he develops this capacity, which is so refined by the time that he composes the confessions. Yeah, and in that, or following that, he he returns to the question of the reality of the immutability of God, the unchanging reality of God, and the mutability or the changing of of creation. And when I think of God who doesn't change, that's kind of, I mean, that's I wouldn't say that's a, not a big mystery to meditate upon or to contemplate, but the the mutability of creation and sort of the decay and the dying of creation, you know, it comes into existence and it ceases to exist, at least in this form, at least in our bodies, you know, at death, there's death, there's death of everything. Um, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. So it's kind of a, a big reality of creation that it's changeable, that it grows, decays, dies, these sort of things. But I think more important here is not a, a meditation on, it's not a memento mori, a sort of keeping in front of us our, our death, but of the, of the unchanging reality of God that he doesn't move. He doesn't change. He does. He's perfect in himself. He's complete in himself. I don't know if there's more to say on that. Uh, maybe there is, Father Gregory. If you have something, yeah, yeah. Well, I I think I've made mention of this terminology a couple of times, but this idea that something can be more or less real 
Another way that we might capture it is to say a thing can be more or less metaphysically thick. That word metaphysical just means we're talking about being here. We're not just talking about appearance or we're not just talking about, I don't know, anything else, something cosmetic. We're talking about the deep down freshness of things. And as St. Augustine kind of gains insight into the nature of God by engaging with the Neoplatonic philosophers, he comes to discover a God who is far more real, terribly more real than anything he had imagined previously, kind of in his hedonism, in his Manichaeanism, as his mind is being put through a kind of conceptual therapy, rather than God kind of coming apart or God proving ethereal, like thin, wispy, not substantial in the least, he's finding a God who is realer than real. Like the fact that we can change is a reflection of our insubstantiality. It's a reflection of our metaphysical thinness, almost like our existential weakness. I realize I'm throwing around some big words, but the mere point is to say that because we can change, it's it's a reflection of the fact that we're just only so much made and not yet wholly so. Whereas God is, God isn't made, right? God just is through and through. His very nature is isness. I mean, his very nature is to be. And so as St. Augustine is reflecting on these things, he's coming to the knowledge of a God who is greater than his heart, you know, a God who exceeds the grasp of his mind, a God whom I has not seen nor ear heard, nor so much as dawned on the heart of man, you know, the, the gifts which lie in store in this God. So that for me is a really bracing thing. It's also a really encouraging thing to know that our simple understandings, our weak imaginations really pale before uh, the reality itself. Yeah. And that, that leads Augustine to this sort of last bit here in these chapters, and that's a proclamation of the goodness of creation. I think here, you know, he's he's realized this, that what is created is good, and he's going to continue with this. But it seems at this point, as he's writing and reflecting, that there's a sort of, there's a turning point in his mind to sort of like, aha, this like, this is now clicking, it's making sense. Not all the pieces are there, but it's, it's beginning to come together as he's been meditating on creation and evil and God's immutability and God's love for us. And I think, I imagine that we have these moments in our own lives with God in our relationship with the faith and the church that, you know, sometimes we might be challenged by this or that, but then as we wrestle with it, as we seek good counsel, as we take it to prayer, things at times make sense. And it's like, okay, got it. I'm I'm with it. I'm moving with it. And, and then in that, we see the beauty too. So he says this about the goodness of creation. He says, thus, for as long as they exist, they are good. And therefore, whatsoever is, is good. Therefore, the evil that I was seeking to explain was not any kind of substance, for if it were, it would be good. Um, but just a recognition of, of the goodness of creation. And this is something that we're going to take up too. And I think more than just sort of abstract thought of the goodness of creation, a recognition of the goodness of himself, not that he's perfect, but that as created by God, so not yet adopted through baptism, that's coming, but that there is some goodness in him. I think when we wrestle with our sin, sometimes there can be a sort of fear that like we're totally corrupt or broken or unlovable or whatever, you know, whatever it might be, however we might describe it. But it's good to be reminded that that's not the case. And I don't know, maybe I'm reading into what St. Augustine writes here, but it seems to be a moment in his life when he recognizes that, you know, God is good and creation is good and there's goodness to be had. I don't know. Tell me if I'm reading too much into it, Father Gregory, but that's what I'm thinking. No, I think, I mean, like, there's just like a baseline affirmation that whenever you encounter something out there in the world, that thing is going to be addressed to you as a knower and as a lover. And insofar as it's addressed to you as a lover, it's it's good, right? Not in a relativistic way, but in a real way. Like, 
anything that we find in creation has a certain goodness to it. It has a, a certain desirability to it. It has a certain perfecting capacity to it. And I think that he's he's gaining an appreciation on that as the Manichaean scales fall from his eyes and he sees creation arrayed in all of its bridal splendor as the bridegroom God is made known to him more and more, you know, deeply, I suppose, or more and more clearly. And so like some of this, the imagery in this particular passage or the, the chapters from which we read, they're almost Eucharistic and like God feeding himself to us you know, like grow and you will feed on me. You know, he is the food of the fully grown. And I think that that just gets down to the very roots of being. Like if we want to be substantial, if we want to be real human beings, then we need to feed on God. Not in, you know, any strange conception of that, but it, in the sense of like, we need to be in living relationship with him. We need to partake of him in the way that he desires us to partake of him. And so I think St. Augustine is gesturing in that direction here and it's, it's cool. Cool. And what this idea and this gesture is going to keep us moving in that direction as we carry on through book seven. So stay tuned for next time. In the meantime, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Mm-hmm.